grad schools I applied to, they were the only one that gave me an assistantship. So I was like, well, I guess I got to stay here if I'm already here and they're going to pay for school. So I'm still here. And I just graduated from there after seven long years. Congratulations. Did you know the whole time that you wanted to do the grad school thing or was that kind of a relatively recent occurrence? I had aspirations for continued higher education, even when I was like an undergrad. Like I, I worked at a writing center and I was really inspired by my supervisor who had like a PhD in like rhetoric or something. I was like, I want to be like her. And I guess getting a PhD is how I do that. And here I am today with a PhD, just not at all doing anything that I plan to do with it. <laughs> we should establish a timeline. When did you end up starting school again? I started school at the University of Georgia in 2017. I mean, it sounds like everything that kind of happened at once, right? Within the space of like one or two years. I mean, you're doing like five or six different things now. And it sounds like 2017, 2018 was a pretty hectic time. Yeah, I don't know. I uh, Yeah, I got into grad school, decided I was running for office started rapping. Yeah. All around the same time. I actually hadn't really thought about that before. Like, wow, you just decided to be so extra starting in 2017 or so. Were they like intertwined or was it just a weird happenstance that it all happened relatively the same time? I guess I had somewhat of an identity crisis because I like moved to the city to like, because there's this cute boy I liked and then that didn't work out. And so I was like, what, what, what is my life now? What am I doing? When we were describing why you moved out there first, you left out that important detail, which is that that relationship that you moved out there did not happen. Nah, it happened, but Well it did sure. keep happening. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh yeah, so I was looking for reinvention and uh so I started rapping. Well, I guess I got into grad school first and then I started rapping. And then I got you know, had been involved in some community organizing and then decided to like take that to the next level and run for office. So yeah, all that was like in the span of a year-ish. I've never moved for somebody. I guess I should probably consider myself lucky. I I, I have had somebody move for me, which not a couple of years, but you know, long run didn't really pan out. But the difficulty and the heartbreak of you know of like breaking up with somebody is is enough even if you didn't move to a different city for them. But that must have been tough to like find yourself like in a, a completely different town. And the reason why you moved there initially didn't work out. Totally. And I feel like especially when you're younger, as you know, early 20s at the time, it's very easy to to like define one's self-worth based on one's relationships. Like the pinnacle of like, you finally made it in life to like in personal matters is like you got a good rock solid relationship. It's like you, 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 when you're young, you're trying to like seek validation everywhere. And so that added layer of like that sense of like self-worth, like, Oh, I made it. We're dating and we got the cute pictures on Instagram together or whatever dumb things motivate young people sometimes. Um, yeah. Like that definitely then spurred me to like, okay, what I got to find a higher meaning than just this. Cause this is not a sustainable source of serotonin. Up to that point, what were you doing? Or I guess, you know, what were your ambitions? I was a substitute uh, at a childcare center. It's crazy. They like paid me nine fifty an hour to watch like 10 two-year-olds. So messed up. I was a wedding caterer. Um, I worked at a print shop. I taught uh, English as a second language. And so I just like had a grab bag of random jobs, often all at once, some, you know, two, three at a time. Um, and was just like enjoying the music scene and vibrant culture of what service industry people do when they get off work in, in a small town. 
I did have aspirations to continue my studies, not necessarily to be a certain something, but I've just always been very hungry for knowledge and intellectually curious. And so like, I wanted to go back to school because like, I didn't necessarily like school, but I love learning. So I knew that was in the cards for me at some point or so I hoped at least. I haven't spent a lot of time in Athens. I I spent like four or five days there once and it it seems like a pretty good place to find yourself. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's a great place to discover one's artistry because of the, the varied and many like musicians and art musical styles represented in its scene. It's like, you know, a pretty compact city. So it also has a strong sense of community where you hang out around enough. You're going to like just bump into a lot of regulars at a bar that then become your friends and maybe become your friends for life. Um, and so there's a lot of benefits to it for uh, a young person trying to figure out where they are in the world and who they are. Definitely. Um, but as I have increasingly filtered almost everything in my life through the lens of public policy, now that I am a policymaker, I definitely see the glaring issues with Athens, Georgia in a way that I actually can't unsee. So. <laughs> Which are? Um, wow. Where do I begin? So I think the housing crisis is probably the most acute representation of just like, what sorts of dynamics control the city. So we are the seat of the University of Georgia. So we have like a quarter of our population is students, most of whom are very wealthy. We have one of the wealthiest student bodies of any public higher education institution in the country. And so the way that then shapes how everything is marketed and the entire economy, but particularly in housing, like you don't have a community if there's people, there aren't people that live together. And so if you don't have housing for the people like you don't have a community, but increasingly um, you're seeing gentrification. You're seeing all of the new housing developments catered towards very wealthy um, undergraduate population and things of this sort. So like I, I've watched the same people that like I came up with in my early years in Athens, like not even able to live in the city anymore practically. And so it's also like that trajectory over time and not necessarily it's in like inherent flaws I savor the days when I did not think about everything through these lenses because it was a lot easier to enjoy just having a dark and stormy at 11.45 after work, back before all of these things felt like they were my responsibility to fix. (laughs) You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, as they say. Yeah, yeah. What was that switch that flipped in you where you felt that you really needed to actively at least try your best to help make a difference? I jumped in. I mean, both in hip hop and policymaking, I just jumped in because I felt like nobody else was doing anything and like not necessarily to like succeed at it. I was like, I might as well take a stab because it doesn't seem like it seems like we need this and nobody's doing it. So I started organizing hip hop shows, not necessarily with the like, intention to try to make Athens better, but like realizing through time how it was somewhat of a political project, given that Athens has remained de facto segregated, particularly in its, well, in in many ways, but in its art scene as well. And so trying to bridge that gap is like a form of cultural organizing. But I think this was most present in deciding to run for office, realizing that like the guy who had represented the district for 25 years and had stepped down had never had an opponent in an election, more or less. And the person running to be his successor was also running unopposed. And so it's just like, yo, look, I have a very interesting and perhaps in some aspects lacking resume, 
But like someone has to run. Like you can't, this isn't democracy if like nobody runs. So I just jumped in there and did it. I was like, I do want to make my community better. I don't know if they will choose me or if they should, but it's not democracy if you don't have options. So I'm going to be the person to try this. And now I'm here four years later. You say these things like they're inevitable, but I think a lot of people would, a lot of people feeling like they, feeling like they couldn't do it and and wouldn't wouldn't take that plunge. I don't know if confidence is the right word. Is that something inherent that you've had in, in you your entire life, that sort of decision to really jump with both feet? I think it definitely comes from my background in hip hop. So like I was once upon a time, a very feared battle rapper in the city of Athens. And I, but I didn't start out that way. I started out that way getting like people making fun of like my, my mama or like calling me a lesbian or whatever. And then like happened to laugh it off and dab this person up and admit that I lost the rap battle. Nobody starts as a feared battle rapper. Over and over again, just humiliation, but for fun almost like over and over again. And so I guess that gave me the courage in a certain sense where like, I'm less afraid of failing. Like, you know, courage is seen as like, oh, you are daring enough to fight until you win. But like, courage is also like, accept, like, willingness to fail. Some people are so scared of failing, but it's not, usually most circumstances, it's not going to kill you. So I just jumped in there like, it's not going to kill me if I get laughed out of this town. Uh, I've been laughed off of plenty of stages, etc. So let's go. Once somebody's making fun of your mother in front of a large group of people, uh, like, yeah. how bad could it possibly get, right? Right, right, right. I probably, a lot of people at my general socioeconomic place in the world, I'm largely familiar with Athens artistically through the, like the Elephant Six scene. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then obviously like going back to Pariam and Pylon and things like that. But I mean, it sounds like, and you alluded to this a little bit, by the time you arrived, was there any kind of existing hip hop scene in the town? There was like a very robust hip hop scene in Athens, to be clear. But the issue is that like, downtown was seen as like the epicenter of everything musical, but it also carried with it a stigma of like, if you've got like baggy pants on or Timberlands or certain kinds of dress, you would quote unquote, you wouldn't be allowed into a lot of establishments. So people like black people just like would not even really come downtown. And so the project of mine was then just integrating these worlds of like, we got people on the east side and the west side who are, you know, playing at these like far flung clubs that aren't getting the shine they deserve because they're not occupying these like seats of creative power in like the popular imagination. And so let's bring them into let's like put them in the buildings where the broader music community like recognizes talent and give them the chance to like be seen by more and more people. I I mean like going back to like I mean Everyone has heard of like Bubba Sparks, but then there's also folks like Issues who toured with KRS-One. Um, we've had a number of like very popular artists today who had brief like childhood experiences in Athens, um, like Ying Yang Twins went to Cedar Shields High School briefly. And so we have we had like a really robust scene in various ways over the decades. It's just a matter of like whether or not it was recognized by the 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 kingmakers of Athens music. I'm from California. I went to school out in Santa Cruz and, and it was just sort of like implicitly understood that if you reach a certain level that that you would, you know, go to San Francisco or somewhere you else. Leave, and ob- right. Obviously like 
Atlanta has a very storied history in, mm-hmm. in hip hop. Is that effectively generally what happens is you, you hit a certain level and you just go over to Atlanta? More or less. Yeah. I mean, or you get you know, picked up by a label that's in Atlanta. So now you're recording in Atlanta and then like you, it's necessarily seen that you need Atlanta ties to like make it big. Um, so I guess there is a certain amount of brain drain in that, in that regard or people like, well, once you get big enough, like you, you don't like, you don't need Athens anymore. Cause the, what, what can you get here? Like, you know, what, uh, what resources or connections are there here to really launch you to the next level? What was scarier, you know, starting to rap at that point in your life or running against a somewhat established political opponent? What was scarier? It's funny because I actually think rapping is scarier because I still experience the terror every time I get on stage now. Like I'm not scared of politics anymore. There's very few times where I'm like, oh no, this is bad. But it's nothing like this the the horror, like the paralysis I still feel right before I get on stage today. And so it's not necessarily like the quality or quantity of fear. It's just like the the fear that I feel when I am rapping it still is like immediate in my mind because it's still constant and regular. <laughs> like I'm going to have a heart attack. And so it's not that it's actually worse than politics. It's just like, I don't feel afraid of politics anymore, but like happy for some reason still gives me the willies. I don't know. I would say at least first blush, the stakes are higher in politics. Perhaps it's that because the stakes are higher. Like I do have to work I have have had to work harder to stay calm. And so like that has brought down my general baseline of anxiety in that context. Cause I can't afford to like freeze in the moment when I'm doing politics. So like I work hard to stay calm versus the uncontrollable and you know, why even try to control it? Anxiety of like when you're about to get on stage. From the standpoint of worst case scenario, something gets goes wrong when you're performing a song, you, you stop and start over or something. Yeah. Like yeah. Far, far larger consequences if something goes terribly wrong in the political world. Oh, my Lord. Yes, indeed. There's a performative aspect of politics. And I assume that at very least when you're campaigning, that you're standing on stages in front of people. Yeah, standing on stoops, giving, you know, my stump speech, uh, walking up to random uh, porches and knocking on people's door and giving them my little rap. My like, not my rap rap, but, you know, like my elevator pitch. And then, you know, getting up there for debates, um, hosting fundraisers and giving speeches in front of people. I feel like I could handle all of that really well because of my background in performance. And to this day, I still really feel like being in City Hall is just another rap battle. You got to just like think quick on your feet, try to just rep where you're from and what you're about, and then keep it cool with the people that you are fighting with later because no permanent friends, no permanent enemies. And so, you know, you leave afterwards and crack a joke about how nice someone's cardigan is, even though they just spit in the face of all the things you believe in love. (laughs) So yeah, it's a, it's a very similar skill set. I think mentally as well as emotionally. (laughs) I have tried to think of like a good analogy. If it's like, you know, you see like people on opposite sports teams or something like, you know, screwing around with each other afterwards or like wrestlers or something where it's just like, yeah, obviously again, stakes are really high, but like you have to deal with these people day to day. You do. It's just maybe the hardest part is the human element of like consensus and the di- interpersonal dynamics of the governing body. Uh, it's unfun. I didn't know until until I was reading up on this and reading up on you. I had no idea. I still don't really know what a county commissioner does. 
Look, yo, I didn't know what a county commissioner did either. Like, I just like had been watching the uh, like the other candidates in that year's like election cycle and hearing about like, oh, we were fight for affordable housing, criminal justice reform, fair fee public transportation. And I was like, I like all those things. That's cool. That's what a commissioner can do. I want to do that. Let's go. Um, I had never been. I'd never been inside city hall to like give public comment or anything. Um, and so I, it was definitely a very steep learning curve. Um, but I think that actually like that appetite to learn is a very key personality trait or skill to cultivate as a public servant. Like you ain't gotta know everything. You just have to be committed to learning and committed to figuring things out. You don't have to have all the answers, but just like, you have to have an open heart to receiving new information and trying your best to process it. So that's what I did. That's what I'm still doing. I, it's one of the things I love most about the job is I get to learn about a fascinating array of topics from the conditions at our jail and what they do when someone's having a nervous breakdown to our stormwater infrastructure and how they get trash out of the river. Just every, yeah, everything. It's so, so, so fascinating. That would be my fear of running for political office is that like, as you get in and then like day to day, it's super boring. I didn't say, okay. I didn't say it was, and all of it was interesting. I find, I find studying the topics fascinating. I find dealing with the tedium of sitting through the meetings in which we are arguing about minutia, not my favorite part of the job. And so... Yeah, there's aspects I like, there's aspects I uh, couldn't do without. But it sounds like overall it's been a positive experience. I've certainly learned a lot. I would like, <laughs> I don't even know if I would generally, I'm really hard on myself. So I don't even know if I would gen- generally call it a positive experience because I definitely would have loved to done, to have done more by this point in my tenure as a commissioner. But I've learned, but because I love to learn, I will forever be grateful for how much I have learned in these first four years. And remain motivated by that. I'm excited to learn more things. So it is positive in that regard. But like, man, I wanted to have ended homelessness by now. I know maybe it was naive, but like, I want to transform society. And that's not really what we do. So it just remains just a couple of, you know, couple of years, decades ahead of me. I can see the vision of where this all might be going, but I need to remain patient. (laughs) Given obviously like all of the, the bureaucratic red tape, but also probably some of the opposition that you end up dealing with. Because everything that you mentioned, these are the sorts of things that shouldn't be radical ideas, but are are, are viewed as being radical ideas. Whether ultimately you can affect more change in office versus like organizing. Yes. So something that I have come upon through this time. That's why I'm so grateful for having for being a commissioner, because I it allowed me to come to this like more coherent theory of power and theory of change. I wish I could describe this hand gesture that you're doing as you say that. It's, it's like sort a, of like, like I uh, pulling like an apple off a tree or, or something. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I have to like post the screenshot. Goes live. Yeah. Um, I mean, the power of the people is mightier than any a politician. And I truly deeply believe that in that I, from studying history, but as well as looking at what has happened in my time as a commissioner, like it's undeniable that uh, the best things the government has ever done have come about um, under immense pressure uh, for organized demands by mass movements of people. And even in Athens, like some of our proudest accomplishments include 
uh, very free public transit, which took like 10 years of people like routinely showing up at, at city hall to like advocate for, to make happen. Passing the first act of reparations in the state of Georgia, tons of people having rallies, town halls, packing the room at city hall to make that happen. Our public safety civilian oversight board, our uh, non-discrimination ordinance, living wages for all of our employees. The, it, we didn't just invent that and do it. It happened because people in the streets, like in the community, fought for it. And so I often feel adrift in that I have largely, and this is not a flex, I've largely accomplished everything I first ran for. And so now I'm like, well, now what do I do? It's just a second ago you were talking about how little you accomplished. But like now I want to do more bigger things. And it doesn't feel like that much in hindsight. I don't know. I don't know. Like when you say, oh, I'm going to make affordable housing. That's such a general thing that, yeah, I can say I did that. But like, did I achieve housing for all Athenians? Nah. And that's what I would like to do. <laughs> you can still feel good about having done like any modicum of that, right? Yeah, I should. What was it? Oh, so yeah, we need like mass movements. Like, think about this example. So I ran on raising the minimum wage, which I can't do in the state of Georgia because it is against the Georgia state constitution. It must be done at at the state legislature level. Um, But if there was like a mini general strike in Athens where all of the workers decided to walk off until their bosses raised their wages to $20 an hour, they could accomplish that faster than the local government could. Like, we can't. But like literally if people organized and made that happen, maybe not the whole city, but like in a single workplace, if they organized and fought for that, they could win that for themselves. And I, as their politician, cannot. So like that's an example where it's like if we put pressure in the right places with the right amount of people, that is how anything happens. Yeah. And now I don't know what to do with that because I'm a politician governing but I also have this strong community organizing itch where it's like, I want to get out there and rile people up to like fight for stuff because we need that. But uh, we've seen bad examples of politicians doing that, like our last president, where riling up one's base can lead to not a good thing. So it's just trying to like parse through, like, what is my role in all this, knowing what I know now about liberation movement history. When you run for office and and get elected, does that preclude you from certain aspects of organizing? I don't think so. I do think it is a capacity question, given that like our agendas that we vote on every two, like, you know, every first Tuesday of the month are like 500 pages long and we get them like the Friday before that meeting. So things like that where it's just like, I want to be out there knocking doors all the time, but it is not necessarily a sustainable way to go about it. I do regularly like commune with activists and like help them shape campaigns, etc. But it's also weird to be like, I guess people's understanding of what politicians should do is interesting to me as well, because I think that the idea we are giving given is that you elect someone and then they just go do what you want. So folks' response of like, why are you out here community organizing? Just go do the thing that people want. Suddenly, like you have a superpower because you're in office. I have a superpower of just like, I should just be able to go and unilaterally do what they think I should, like they want me to do. I was like, I am one vote of 10. And we also deal with a lot of bureaucracy. And it just takes sustained pressure from more than just me. Sure. And it turns out that people don't like it when politicians do things unilaterally. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And so I just struggle with that a lot where 
when I come to people and say, yes, let's get organized and let's all go to city hall and I'll fight for you and we'll fight together. People are like, nah, you go do it. And I don't, I don't think that works. I don't believe in that at these days. So that is my struggle oftentimes. I think the main struggle when it comes to that action is, um, is, is how frustrating it can be and like, and, and, and how often it just feels like you're, you know, you're out there all the time and, and that the needle isn't being moved. I don't know anybody at this point over the last years who isn't undergoing like some sort of existential crisis. That's helpful to remember. I think I have been having one lately, but uh, it's helpful to know that it is not just me. Most people I find have actually gone through some sort of personal transformation for better or worse these last two years. So I'm not alone in that. What is your personal existential crisis? So I, as I come to see the incompatibilities of being a politician and being a community organizer, while not total, but like they are not, it's not a, you know, the Venn diagram is not a circle. I feel a pull. I feel my capacity is strained and I really wish sometimes I could just dedicate myself to one or the other, but I, I just love doing so many things. I just can't. I don't know. I don't know what to do. You're talking about, oh, you know, I can't really do the organizing thing because I'm so busy with the county commissioner job. But it's like, yeah, we're kind of only scratching the surface on the the things that you do. (laughs) I guess so. The initial impetus for this conversation is the music. You know, you've got certain people. I like I look at the aggregate of what they do and I, I can't wrap my brain around how they find time to do any of those things. Yeah, I feel like I am. uh, I'm blessed with a nightmare of options of of like of like choices it's a beautiful thing and a terrifying and terrible thing where i do i mean i'm very blessed that i get to do a lot of cool stuff but it is an existential crisis of like which one is going to help the world more and maybe i should do that but which one makes me happiest and maybe i should just go do that or like i enjoy the the a little bit of the chaos a little bit of the variety and, and like the challenge and so yeah i just like think that I also feel external pressure to figure out like my lane Um, because not many people do this many different random things. So that is perhaps my existential crisis. An embarrassment of riches. It sounds like embarrassment of riches. I knew there was an actual term for it, but I was like, "Ah, that's like a a very unconsciously pessimistic version of that, that you've made up. No, that sounds worse. Yeah. (laughs) A nightmare of opportunities. That's like a murder of crows. Yeah, yeah. How did Bellringer end up gelling? Um, so I started writing it shortly after my first album came out, um, and just in bits and pieces. A lot of it just in my head in the car, driving to play different shows. And then it really started popping off uh, 2020 for some reason or another. I just had a lot of time to, to myself to like not be constantly on the road playing shows, so just like be quiet with my thoughts. But also there was like so many things to process, obviously. And so in the quiet, being able to like really sit with a lot of my feelings that I hadn't been dealing with and like actually turning those through like the gears of songwriting to make the sausage. But then also like watching workers get thrown under the bus in the name of, you know, the stock market and people kneeling in the streets surrounded by tear gas. Like, what do we, what do I make of all of this? Um, but starting to get, you know, my own role in the uprising of 2020 emerging as somewhat of a de facto leader on accident. I, uh, started getting death threats and things like that. And so like trying to process the toll that it had on my mental health, 
grasping with the reality of like my position and that this means this, this is a thing. The volume of information and change that I, uh, that we all experienced during that time. I was just like writing, 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 writing. And then sort of, I think, oh yeah, I I was going to have a baby. I said, I was like, oh yeah, I'm having a baby. And so I just had, I was like, I got to get this done before I have a baby. Cause I hear that's difficult to do. Like infant. I haven't heard that. That's interesting. Challenging? Yeah. I don't know. So they say, so yeah, I had a hard deadline, like finish this album. And I think I literally like we shipped it off to get mixed like a month, three weeks before I was due. <laughs> so yeah. And now it's here and now it's here. You use the phrase de facto leader on accident, which I thought was really interesting. I mean, obviously, you know, there are certain things that were done intentionally in terms of like the organizing that you did and uh, running for office, but y- you feel like your sort of role in the community was to a certain extent accidental. Yeah. It, once again, it was like looking around and like, it felt like no one was going to step up and do something. And so I was like, oh man, okay, I guess like I will organize these protests and stuff. And also I think people needed, and particularly like not just among activists, like politicians, like standing with the very radical demands being made in the streets. Like no one else is going to like hear these folks. Like, I guess I have to be the person standing with you all on the like, elected side of things because no one else was like about that life and so i didn't want it to be me but it had to be again and so i i looking back i wish it hadn't been me but here we are it happened and like good things came out of it it's just like it uh it changed things forever so death threats are like the obvious answer but but why do you why do you wish it hadn't been you um the fracturing among the activist community given like the trauma and stress we were all under during that time like i lost friendships yeah and like things like that like i i don't i hate that i yeah death threats obviously but um the emotional toll on myself on myself of uh just like going out to every single one of these protests and knowing that um, if anything happened to anyone, I would feel guilt for the rest of my life. And like, I think some of that weight still stays with me, though that threat has passed. I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want that. And I just think it's better when like, when the people really lead politicians. So like, folks, you know, I'm a, I'm a proponent of defunding the police. And so folks didn't like know what that really meant in action because they don't, they didn't really understand. Like I know what they still don't. Yeah. They don't, but like, yeah, but in terms of like functionally, like the, the, the gears of government, like what does that mean? And so stepping in to be like, okay guys, I have this idea of how it could work. Are you down? As opposed to like actually having people bring me what they wanted to see and rolling with that. You know, it's sort of like backwards, like things like that make me uncomfortable where I step in and into like movement, work liberation spaces with ideas but like i'm the politician i'm supposed to be listening to people and so i just struggle with that a lot to this day and definitely like wish that had been a this i wish that would have played out differently during the uprising perhaps i do always dream of an ideal world so having a kid was you know like a literal deadline as you described it but beyond that is there you know, especially with this, the, the confluence of things, you know, they're happening, I mean, not just COVID, obviously, like George Floyd and everything else. The Is there a way in which, like, you know, bringing a life into this world is also a motivating factor? It is, certainly. 
I do want to make the world better for like a concrete human in my life and not like an abstraction of like a community, a neighborhood, my constituents, which like, yes, they are physical, living, real people, but it is also an abstraction in a certain sense. And so like, there's this little tiny human that is drawing on the mirror with a banana right now who like, I need to protect and I need to make the world better for, uh, particularly in the face of threats like climate change, et cetera. So that does add a, a degree of pressure generally, but then it has also brought a greater sensitivity to issues of healthcare and just family supports, uh, reckoning with how difficult it is to do anything if you don't have consistent childcare. Having thousands of dollars in unpaid medical bills um, still, uh, all of these kinds of things. And just thinking about folks in, the, in my community who aren't able to give their kids the kinds of lives they want and the myriad ways that like manifest. Yeah, so there's like a, a policy shift in focus as well with that. But yeah, the stakes are higher because like this person who did not choose to be here, I chose for him to be here, is now going to have to like live the consequences of my public policy. <laughs> and so it feels a little more tense. <laughs> I like the banana thing because I, I saw you tweet about that too. And I think it's funny. I think a part of, of getting older and, and, you know, like being more mature is the, the recognition that, that obviously you can't do everything. I interview a lot of musicians. I was talking to a, to a jazz musician earlier this week and, you know, I was saying, at a certain point, you have to accept the fact that no song is going to sound like it sounds in your head. Oh, do I have to accept it, though? Oh. Sometimes you got to <laughs> let the kid draw in the mirror with the banana. Yeah, yeah, you do. And those little moments of joy in themselves. Because like, I feel like a lot of a lot of people my age are like, nah, we ain't having kids. I can't afford a rent, let alone a mortgage. I got student loans. Climate catastrophe. Why would you have a kid? But it's just like... It's fun and sweet. Like, I love this person. Like, don't you love to love people? It's great. So, um, yeah, let them draw on the banana. <laughs> let them draw on the banana. That's also a thing you would probably do. Um, because, yeah, like, it, it, things just unfold the way they do. And there's beauty in it that we we need to accept. It's beautiful to accept. I'm just thinking of, like, what, what is, what, I don't, I can't, what was it the serenity, serenity prayer, they call it, in AA, where it's like, yeah, give yeah. me the... Except give the courage to... Yeah, yeah, you got it. I'll let you go. Except the things that I cannot change, and 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 that's kind of what I'm talking about, right? Is knowing that there there is a certain there's an extent to which you can move the needle, mm-hmm. and it's the campsite thing, right? Like to leave the campsite better than you found it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing that saves my sanity often is having seen examples of how a small act can ripple out into something somewhat momentous. So, like when I first ran for office. I had a friend who just got fired from her movie theater job. And I was like, Hey, you want to be my campaign manager? And she was, and she went from doing that to being, I would argue one of the best labor organizers in the state of Georgia. Cause she had like a foothold to like get some campaign experience and then go just do movement work full time. And you never know when something like that might happen where like the person you help support in becoming an organizer becomes like the face of the movement. Or that single email you send turns into a project that like funnels millions of dollars into affordable housing in your neighborhood. You don't know. You just don't know. And I find a lot of um, find a lot of energy in those kinds of daydreams of like where things might go. You never know what seeds you plant will grow and bloom, but like appreciation for watering every single one because that's that's how you get 
something beautiful and shade you can sit in. It's slightly depressing and kind of maddening to think about how many people there are out there who just like haven't been given that initial chance. Yeah. Who just never, ever had that chance. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that I cannot despair. It is, it is helpful to like maintain that righteous anger, but like the, the sheer scale of the crises, the sheer number of people and suffering can daunt in a way that is not helpful to think about sometimes. Yeah. And so like, yeah, there's absolutely so many millions of people who have never been given that chance. And it's important to meditate on that and center one's like work around that, that truth. But um, I try not to get stuck there too much because I'm already kind of pessimistic. It's, <laughs> it's easy for me to just have a doom spiral. So it's better to just try to like, have a lot of gratitude and have a lot of grounding and focus. So I was watching a little bit of the conversation you had with Zoom. I'm sure you've had many conversations, but the, the Zoom conversation you had with Angela Davis, who uh-huh. again was a professor at my alma mater, but unfortunately oh, nice. at Santa Cruz. Yeah. And, but unfortunately, like could not get into those classes were always full. I mean, I was <laughs> listening to her speak like very matter of factly about being in prison, about yeah. not just being in prison, but like about, I and I, and I, I don't think I knew this just about how realistic a possibility like the death penalty was, which is horrifying. I bring it up because it, speaking of this conversation of not despairing, I mean, to hear somebody like that who has been through what she's been through to speak about it so matter of factly and the fact that ultimately it wasn't a deterrent. It's like I had had kind of a shit week and you know, you're asking before we started recording couldn't think of anything particularly good that had happened this week. I wasn't in prison. Yeah, period. And so like, she gives me so much hope because yeah, she's been an anti-prison activist for like 50 years. And if she's still out there riding in the back of a pickup truck at a longshoresman strike where they're shutting down the entire ports coast and the coast of the West coast, like 50 years later and she's been to jail. What am I doing out here feeling like, oh, not that I'm doing making a difference. Like, that's whack. So I, uh, the, the how long, some, it's weird. Sometimes thinking about how long everything is taking also gives me a weird kind of hope where it's like a beautiful thing to be carrying on the work of people like her and those that aren't with us now and envisioning how my son will probably carry on the work. I'm not going to finish it. Uh, but thinking about that is a beautiful thing to me. So um, I don't have it as bad. I ain't never been to prison. And also, the struggle is long, and it's kind of a beautiful thing to be part of. I mean, I, I like that framing because, uh, you know, I mean, the flip side of it is that it's depressing knowing that long after you go, that things are still going to be bad. Yeah, a little bit. But also, yeah, I mean, like, I'm stoked to be walking in the shoes of of the folks that came before. That's an honor. And like, I like imagining my little dude to be like a freedom fighter if I'm not around one day. So was your mom involved in any of this? She did instill in me like a willfulness and a will to activism early on um, where she just kind of encouraged my innate compassion where I'd be like sad about homeless people. So she would like, you know, okay, let's get some blankets and go right around the city and like, and, and hand stuff out. And, um, just encouraged, encouraged me to take com- action on my compassion that I felt from a very, very young age. And then I, she got me into the Obama campaign 
when I was um, 17, not to date myself here, but I was too young to vote when he ran in 2008. So um, I like got out knocking on doors and, you know, like campaigning for him. And so that was like a large part of my early activism is like, particularly around that election. It was like a very formative experience. And so, uh, yeah, she still remains one of my biggest cheerleaders. Well, I saw this, the great, the great picture of you swearing in with the Malcolm X autobiography and she's standing right next to you. So obviously she's like quite literally by your side in that photo. Yeah, supporting no, you. She, yeah she supports, she supports the, how, how that compassion manifests in action. Like, would she have assumed one day I would get sworn in on the autobiography, autobiography of Malcolm X? Probably not, but she was stoked that I'm up there standing for what I believe in. And always has been, always has encouraged me to do that. So She's a musician, right? Yeah, she's a beach music and gospel singer. Were you sort of immersed in music early on? 100%. Yeah, so like, grew up really listening to, like, all my friends were listening to like Lil Wayne and My Chemical Romance. And I was like secretly listening to like disco and stuff that like she had put me on to and like Parliament Funkadelic. You were like actually ahead of that curve. I guess so. That's something I came back into. Yeah, I came back into Vogue, but now nah, I was like had, had to hide, like that I love Bootsy Collins from my friends in seventh grade. But, and now uh, they're all hiding that they're still listening to My Chemical Romance. Who, who won, it. right? Um, but then, so yeah, so she was a backup singer. She was in a gospel trio with her sisters, and then they became like a backup singing trio um, for like beach music bands that would play on the Carolina coast. Um, so it's really just like classic R&B kind of covers, but then like a very specific like dance culture that goes with it. And so um, they would travel all around the coast playing those um, shows. And so I'd go with them. I'd ride along in the car. We'd harmonize together, hang out in the green room. Um, and so that was very formative in terms of my like musical aesthetic, as well as like, I guess, you know, my shower singing that I have cultivated ever since. I'm always fascinated by musicians who are children of musicians and whether I, so I'm a, I'm a, I'm a journalist by trade. I don't know if like my kid, my kid got into it, like how supportive of that to be, but also how like pragmatic and realistic to be about how difficult it is and try to sort of like dissuade them from that life. Oh, I've not yet thought of that. In fact, I've thought of the opposite where like, I suspect that my like I have this weird fear that my kid is gonna be like, I was raised by these ra- radical extremist socialists, and so I that's why I am running as Donald Trump Jr.'s running mate or whatever. Little but, like, like Candace Owens, baby. Yeah, Alex, I can accept that. I'm pretty sure I can live with that. I'll probably be really sad, but like the one thing I will be sad about if, is if he doesn't love music. Um, and so, like very early on, that he's taken a liking to like dancing and like vocalizing and loves watching music videos like makes me really happy but i haven't really thought about that next piece and i'm glad you brought that up because it's like i am i gonna encourage him to do this thing that is like not historically highly profitable i mean you don't i mean obviously you know you you, you you've, you've got some time there but like for and and it sounds like your mom has been super supportive about your political ambitions. You know, you're still young, late in life is not the way you're right putting it, but like you kind of like came into doing music professionally a little bit later. Yeah, that's true. I guess. I started when I was like 25. And she was supportive of that too? Yeah, yeah. She, uh, I guess, had been hoping for that, you know, that I would take after her in that. I had not really shown a strong procl- proclivity for like music making myself like independently outside of like 
well, you know, putting on a song in the car and I'll do the alto and you do the soprano. So I think she was pretty stoked that I was like actually going out there and making music and whatnot. And particularly in my first album, I think you could really hear some of the like classic soul and R and B influence and it's like boom bappy, lo fi beat um buffet. So yeah, I think she I think she she's been stoked on that. I it's hard for me to tell though if there'd be anything I did that she wouldn't be stoked about. She's always been so supportive. Do something like that would really piss her off to just see know. how she let's, reacts let's to start it. An I'll be right back. Let me see yeah, if I'm like I'm gonna be a big game hunter or something. Yeah, yeah. So but uh no, she's been very excited about um my music and then like excited to see it do good, you know, be well received in whatever way it has been. So I used to ask people who make political music whether they think that you know that that like political music or protest music can actually affect change. But I but I but I I changed it recently to start asking people. You know, in in your life, have have you seen music affect real change? Um, I think that. I, I had like felt this before, but like Dr. Davis actually put it really well in kind of talking about the album that like art doesn't change the world, but it changes people who change the world. And so I have seen that where like music has helped people either analyze their own circumstances in a new way that has allowed them to take action or inspired them to consider new forms of actions they haven't before, or just keep fighting to keep fighting for longer because they've got something to put on in the car on the way to lobby at the Capitol that'll like get them hyped up. And so those ways that art can change people, I I do think I have seen translate then into like material change in the world. So folks who have fought for unions in their workplaces, um, folks that have recognized that um, the individualization of systemic problems is not it is not the way um and then you know that then informing their community organizing or just moments of community as well built through around music of like oh yo like you know we used to do these collabs on these hip-hop shows and now you out here speaking at the podium to city hall because we met around music yeah art doesn't change the world but art does change people and that's powerful the second part especially i is something that dawned on me lately i I was i was having a conversation with um ed wayne kramer on the show and he's you know he's like a big a musician and like has been a prison abolitionist for decades and decades having gone through the system himself and that was effectively his take on it was the power of music is that it it puts all those people in the same place at the same time yeah and then that's ground zero for change to actually start yeah I would certainly agree. I'm always curious, like, especially in like what feels like a fairly dark time and has for a while now, what, what gives you hope? So I also, (laughs) I also recently started working with Raise Up the South, which is the Southern arm of the fight for 15. Um, And so I train organizers how to talk to fast food workers about how, what they put up with is bullshit and they should fight back for more. And I find so much hope in those single conversations with the guy from McDonald's that just walked out in the parking lot, pissed at his boss, didn't put him on the schedule. And seeing how quickly someone like that could be turned from just like defeated, pessimistic, lost, to like, yeah, let's go. Like if someone just comes and like is there to listen and there to give them a sense of what you can do in that scenario and remembering and help them remember that they're not alone. 
And so I find so much hope in like seeing how folks can be energized by a single interaction like that. And thinking about that mass movement I described, like if we could all be having that single conversation with the person who needs it, like that alone in a span of months, sometimes things pop off a lot shorter than that could be the force we need to change all of this. The people, the people give me so much hope. They're so smart. They have so much passion. I really believe that they can accomplish anything if consciously organized.